everyone. Welcome back to the Jonathan underscore Foster podcast. It's a choir cast podcast, which means that there's a group of us that work together with Pathios.com, you know, to provide podcasts that are all generally progressive, affirming, interested in deconstruction, the evolution of faith, you know, those kinds of things. So you will hear advertisements from time to time, like from groups like This Is Not Church or Holy Heretics or the Messy Spirituality Podcast, stuff like that. It's going to be about these shows, about authors from these shows, and also random advertisements. So thanks for your patience with all that, and thanks for supporting those particular shows. All right, today we've got my friend Jim Palmer. He's a really interesting guy. I think you're going to pick up on that as you hear us get into this conversation. So Jim has been a megachurch pastor, an author, an influencer in the 21st century post-Christian movement, I guess we might say, who's been really interested in A, being honest about religion and faith in his own life, and B, in helping others. And to that end, he started the Center for Non-Religious Spirituality a few years ago. And I recommend that you check that out. You can either Google that, the Center for Non-Religious Spirituality, or just look him up at jimpalmerauthor.com. Meanwhile, thank you so much again for helping me make the Indigo crowdfunding campaign happen. Indigo, of course, is my newest book, Indigo, The Color of Grief. We wound up funding at almost 200% of the goal, so I think that constitutes as a win. Thank you very much. It'll be out now on the Amazons, the Barnes & Nobles, the Apples, and all those kinds of places on December 5. So depending on when you're listening to this, I mean, if it's before December 5, Just get in on the pre-order. If it's after December 5, yeah, you're good to go, man. Just order one, pick a copy up. If you like it, make sure you leave a review. It's also out on audio, though I will say Audible, which of course is the biggest audio company. Uh, For some reason, Audible always takes a lot longer, so it's going to be a few weeks before that's good to go. But there's 40 other stores, literally 40 other places where you can pick it up in audio. If you have any problems with any of that, Obviously, just reach out to me. We'll figure it out, but it should be pretty easy. And again, thank you so much for being a part of all of that. All right, let's get to my conversation with Jim Palmer. Thanks, everyone. Have a great week. Peace. All right, everyone. Good to have you with us today and good to have my friend Jim Palmer with us. And uh, Jim, I forget, where are you coming from? I don't even remember. I'm in Idaho right now. So I'm from Blacksburg, Virginia. I currently live in Nashville, Tennessee, but I'm making a move to the Boise area, you know, the end of December. So that you can be closer to Tom Ord. Yeah. And we had coffee recently at the Flying M and, you know, that was awesome. And he's also an avid hiker. So I've kind of been, you know, stalking all his hiking trails he posts on Facebook and we've agreed to go do some hikes together. So I'm kind of looking forward to that. Yeah, that's cool. Well, it's really good to connect with you again today. Um, I was thinking earlier, you know, uh, we use the term pioneer sometimes. And it's a compliment, not the colonialism, notwithstanding that seems to be attached to being a pioneer. So set that aside for a moment. Um, Like you are kind of like an actual pioneer in terms of what you've been doing in the work of spirituality and church and religion and helping people move beyond all the presuppositional baggage that comes attached with so much stuff with American Christianity You've been doing it quite a while. Um, I mean, I was reading, well, of course, Divine Nobodies and Wide Open Spaces and those kinds of things were coming out 20-some years ago. That's uh, that's just amazing. So first of all, thank you for doing that work, being on the cutting, probably slash bleeding edge of so much of that, and uh, for helping us. You know, maybe one day I'll figure out how to turn notifications off on my... <laughs> 
computer, well, computer but so back um so a little bit of my story after a very volatile childhood and youth at a at a McDonald's in you know Blacksburg Virginia a guy led me to accept Jesus Christ as my savior and I um at that point went off to college I was going to play football in college but because of a severe injury I wasn't able to but I decided I was going to go ahead and go to East Tennessee State University, which is the university I was going to go to and play football. <clears throat> I was a brand new born again Christian, ran into a guy who was the director for Campus Crusade for Christ in the student center one day. He invited me to Campus Crusade. <clears throat> and I tell people that I kind of majored in Campus Crusade during my years in college, although I did get a degree in journalism and in sociology. But I discovered through Campus Crusade that there were two things that I could do that I never realized I could do before, which is I could talk in front of people and I could like lead stuff. And so on the basis of that, I became the student body president of our Campus Crusade chapter, you know, met a guy who was church planting in my college town, became friends with him. And on the basis of that, I went to seminary, went to seminary in Chicago, got my MDiv at Trinity, discovered Willow Creek Community Church, joined their, their pastoral staff team, was at Willow Creek as a teaching pastor, and did that for some years, went and planted a church like Willow Creek in Nashville, Tennessee, which is something that a few of us did who left Willow Creek to do this. And this was all kind of going along quite well. We're talking about the, the late 90s, mm -hmm. um, 2001, 2000, 2001, and then had a crisis of faith mm -hmm. and decided to walk away from my ministerial career, walk away from my Christianity, try to figure out what just went wrong, and then started writing books and then got flooded with people who were sharing their story about they also kind of had some struggles with their involvement in Christianity and things of this nature. And and so this was 2002, 2003, before, it, you know, there was anything called deconstruction before religious trauma syndrome was even in anybody's thoughts at that time. And just started working with people, which I guesstimated about 40,000 hours of my life has been spent counseling people through religious deconstruction and reconstruction, you know, recovering and healing from religious trauma, cultivating a post-religion spirituality, and eventually started training other people to kind of do this work. So that's a little bit of... I guess maybe the journey that that I've been on and you know it's it's been a, a pretty wild ride up to this point and you know there's always something to learn I've learned a lot from you I've learned a lot from Tom you know I've you know ORT and process philosophy or, or a couple areas the last couple years that I've seen a lot of value in, in terms of doing religious deconstruction for people, at least a lot of people who were, um, you know, wanting to kind of reframe their conceptualizations of God in the Bible as part of their reconstruction process. Yeah, man, that's a lot. You just covered a lot of uh, about 25, 30 years. And uh, just I'm proud of, I'm proud of the work that you've done. And the way you've helped others it's 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 pretty amazing and i'm really glad that we've been able to connect this year and uh that's that's pretty cool yeah I, go ahead no i was just gonna say that you know my interest lately or to some extent it's gotten on my radar of generation z right so that generation is up and coming they're considered you know the the, the least religious generation they're considered the first post-Christianity generation, and roughly 35 to 40% of Generation Zers identify as either atheist or agnostic, which is double the general population. So this is an example of my own growth over the years in terms of spiritual direction, because now, for example, you have, let's say, nihilism coaching, because not only are Gen Zers you identifying more with like being atheist or agnostic for whom those words aren't negative. Perhaps they might've been in times past, but 
they're struggling also like depression is you know highest among the gen z generation and part of this is that you you know like this sort of existential vacuum of not sure about the meaning of life are there really any absolutes god is Is dead man yeah so you know, there's nothing new under the sun, right? When Nietzsche said that God is dead, he knew that this was going to create a black hole of nihilism. And so he kind of put forth his own, you know, ideas of filling that void, some of which sound a whole lot like Jesus in terms of the, in terms of the Ubermensch and other, you know, the self-actualized man and these kinds of concepts. And we might be getting back to that point where for a lot of people in deconstruction, particularly in Gen Z, that they're struggling. They kind of went, burned it all the way down to the ground and asking questions like, is life even worth living? Mm-hmm. You know, um, and is there any meaning to life? And if there are no absolutes, then like, what does that even mean? You know, and I find also a lot of people in that realm are either either terrified by the idea that there is no free will, or they're terrified that it's like that they do have free will. Right. So, like truly free. In other words, there is no absolute external structure for them to derive their sense of going forward. It's all on them in terms of the meaning of life, the choices they make you know, the, and so on. And so, you know, that's a lot for a 20 year old. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is. It's a lot for us 50 year olds. You, <laughs> you got Gen Z kids, right? Yes. Well, she's right on the borderline. Okay. Um, she, uh, Jessica, you know, the greatest, uh, uh, I mean, um, uh, the greatest daughter father could ever ask for, she uh, has a career in social work, and we have a lot of conversations about what can be done to work on a broken foster care system mm-hmm. and children that are raised through all the issues that occur in the foster care system process and so on, you know, um, that may not necessarily have the spiritual resources or have have never had the opportunity to cultivate a spiritual life that that could help support their their process of of you know emerging into young adulthood and so on um and you know i i did human rights work for a period of my life and traveled the world investigating cases of forced, forced child prostitution and child slave labor and the reconstruction process for like let's say a 12-year-old who has been forced to provide sex to customers four or five times a day, six days a week under the threat, you know, of some form of of you know uh, punishment, or, or children that have been tied to poles and had a quota of rolling cigarettes and would be whipped with electrical cords had for failing their quota. This was a big part of my deconstruction process after leaving religion is that all my foolproof, seminary approved, you know, answers about God didn't quite line up with the experiences that I was having in the world. And frankly, it wasn't even lining up in terms of what I saw in the sea of faces of people and what I knew about their lives who rolled in every Sunday to hear me deliver my upstanding evangelical theology right backed and endorsed by willow creek community church which was at the time uh you know the the most happening thing so yeah at that time it was the largest church in north america you know they were on the cover of time magazine i mean it was definitely novel back in the particularly in the mid-70s. I mean, we all know some people. Gilbert Bilzekian, for example, was a bit of the brainchild behind it. And Bill Hybels was the front man. Don Cousins really built the guts of the church in terms of growing it organizationally. And, you know, um, it did a it did a lot of good in, um, 
you, you know, uh, making spirituality, Christian spirituality relevant to people who were very disillusioned with traditional church. Mm-hmm. Um, and they made accommodations along the way by starting a small group ministry and then having a team teaching team on midweek, which would do a little bit more in-depth teaching and things like this, you know, um, but you know, as mega churches go, it, you never, you know, it's, there's only, it has some limitations. Yeah. Oh, definitely. It has some built-in limitations that are highly problematic. Yeah. Willow Creek was uh, one of those places that was influential on me. I think we probably had a lot of, um, I mean, you obviously knew more people there than me, but being, having worked there, but uh, interviewed there a couple of times, have a lot of mutual friends and went to all the leadership conferences. Tell about, 2000 and about six, probably about the time I started reading your stuff, maybe um, somewhere in there. I was there one time and I said to myself, you know what? God bless these people, but I don't ever need to come back to a leadership conference. I am done with this. And I thank God I haven't been to a leadership conference since that day. And that just the whole, just the phrase makes me slightly nauseous. So, yeah, I mean, it was definitely people would make the pilgrimage to the mothership to learn the secrets of building megachurch. And, you know, eventually... all their mimetic desires juiced up to go back home and emulate everything Bill Hybels was doing. Exactly. Right. And then, I guess, let's see, how can we carry this all the way? They would scapegoat Willow Creek when it didn't work out (laughs) the way they they thought. Although that's not really the proper application of, I think, that you know, you and Gerard and others think about it. But still, there was... I did learn eventually, which is that you, you know, you just can't do that. You can't duplicate Willow Creek or any other church, you know, because there's no way you could ever imitate all the factors or the people involved or the conditions and circumstances that gave rise to it. And to try to do that artificially, I mean, heck, you could give Bill Hybels scripted messages if you wanted to deliver them at your church and have Nancy Beach put together the drama and creative arts packages and you just roll in and kind of do that. But it isn't going to work quite the same way, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You miss something by, by doing that kind of fabricated prepackaged approach among other things. Well, um, so back up a little bit, what was the crisis? Was there a particular crisis? Um, You kind of alluded to, you know, your experience was, was different in the real world than it was at church. Was there a series of things or was there something specific that really seemed to antagonize you and make you think, oh, there's got to be a, there's, there's something going on here that isn't quite adding up. Well, when I was uh, pastoring, it one day occurred to me after a pastoral counseling session with a couple, I had the observation that it sure seemed that despite all my my very good and approved information I was delivering every Sunday about God, that the the basic problems and struggles and neuroses among the people in our church persisted. Anxiety, depression, broken relationships, unhappiness, addiction, so on. And so that aha moment was a bit troubling and then in a very 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 rare moment of brutal self-honesty i admitted that well actually jim despite your your good theology you don't really have this peace or this wholeness or this centeredness and you know you have all this anxiety and these things also. So it's not really working for you all that great either. So we got a problem there too. Then one day a woman called and said, Hey Jim, do you mind if we meet for coffee, which is something ordinarily I wouldn't do, but I did do in this case, I met this woman for coffee and she like slid up her dress and showed me bruises all up and down her legs. She slid up the sleeves of her blouse and showed me that, well, she was married to our worship leader. And so the worship leader was beating his spouse. And so if I could, you know, I was never a guy. Look, I came from Willow Creek. I wasn't delivering sermons about eternal conscious torment as a possible scenario for people who didn't believe in God. I mean, 
I kind of believed it, but it's not something that I, I mean, I sort of believed it because it was just part of the package, but right. it's not something I really, I gave, you know, the, 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 the best possible, in my view, you know, the teachings of Jesus and other things and applying them to life and so on. But if I had to point to one event, that was just like the camel, that, that was like the, the, the thing that broke the camel's back. Yeah. And it's like, okay, we have a serious Houston. We have a problem, and I went to our board, and they wanted me to stay and take a sabbatical. I felt like I couldn't really do that, and I this is when I kind of resigned and walked away. And then when I walked away from that, I really immersed myself in in other aspects of the lived human experience. And as it turns out, doing human rights work was a part of that. Part of that was directing a nonprofit agency that works with at-risk kids and their families. This might have influenced my daughter a little bit to go into social work. And that's when it really was not adding up. Even in, you know, Divine Nobody's my first book, basically each chapter just revolves around this unsuspecting person I cross paths with that shows me why my theology is messed up. Like Wanda, the Waffle House waitress, like Rick, the tire salesman, you know, the uh, a hip hop musician, a girl with cerebral palsy, this flaming liberal, you know, swim instructor that in that case for me would, would have been a bad thing because as a good evangelical, I was also Republican. And so these chapters were the undoing of my Christian assumptions, even many of the theological assumptions that that really changed my life and then a lot of the messages i got from people after that book were were you know jim i get it i'm having a real problem with all this stuff and i noticed quickly that people kind of get stuck in this kind of anti-religious fervor and you can't get stuck there i mean of course you know people feel feelings of anger betrayal abandonment and all sorts of things which are natural feelings of the deconstruction process but you don't really want to like get stuck in it. Like there's more to move on to. So, so that was wide open spaces. I was like, okay, I'm going to write a book. This is what it's looking like for me trying to move forward. And I did have an explanation in that book about where I was coming to where, what I, the way I was thinking about Jesus, but it didn't sit quite right. And it was just like, okay, I don't think I quite got it in that chapter. So the next book contract I signed, the first book, was this idea. I had this idea, I'm going to do an experiment. The experiment is, where I've come to with Jesus, is there's no real difference between Jesus and I on any foundational or any ontological or metaphysical level. Like, I could do anything Jesus could do. There's no difference whatsoever, really. The only difference, maybe, is that Jesus, he was more aware of and actualized his understanding of himself in his divinity, but it wasn't that he had a different, you know, transcendent nature than I did. We share in the same thing. So the idea of the book was I'm going to take a year and to answer the question, could I do anything that Jesus would do? And the publisher was really happy about this because the basic idea was, well, of course, Jim's going to discover he's not Jesus and he's going to flounder. This is going to be hilarious and probably be a bestseller. Yeah. Um, what happened instead was I came up, I started living the experiment, and the I ended up pressing into this idea that either that Jesus was more human like me than I thought, and I'm actually more divine like Jesus than I thought. And right. anyway, the long and short of it is that they felt like that I had gone outside the lines of biblical orthodox. Um, you, you know, theology. And at that time, and my friend Rob Bell, we like same publisher, same problem. We were kind of deemed heretics and my book contract was canceled and the book never got published. And, you know, it was called Being Jesus in Nashville. And, and what's really interesting about that is the book is not a theological book. It's basically stories of my discovering what it really meant to be Jesus. Um, and, the, and what I learned about myself and Jesus in that process, but because it, in their mind, tinkered with the line of 
Jesus divinity relative to me, mm -hmm. it kind of blew up the, you know, it, it kind of blew everything up in that regard, you know? <laughs> and so. How dare you? Yeah. So there's actually a warning label on the book. When I republished it, it says warning rejected by a Christian publisher to let people <laughs> know. And of course, my very last book, it didn't help that I made the title rejecting God and Jesus in order to save the world or something like that. Yeah, Inter yeah. Anarchy was the last book that I wrote. And, you know, um, and someone said, Jim, don't put that subtitle because you you don't mean that in a way that people are going to hear it. Don't put it on the, you know, and I did anyway, because that's the way I am. And, um, but okay. Okay. So time out. I got a, I got a comment and several questions for you. Okay. Because you've given so much good stuff. And the first comment was, I loved how you just said that, that Jesus maybe was a little bit more like me and I was a little bit more like the, the divine. I think it's a really great way of putting it. And I hope listeners uh, catch on to that and that they're reminded or that they know that really in the, the New Testament story, it, it really wasn't about, I mean, the, the discussion wasn't about Jesus being the son of God. I mean, that only kind of really happens a few hundred years later, right? When the church and the powers and Constantine and everyone else starts to get involved, and then they have to decide after the fact. But that wasn't the real issue while Jesus was, you know, that's not in the biblical story. So it's so funny how we, we've we just kind of screwed ourselves, you know, with all of that. So Yes, I, I well, let me just say quickly yeah. that I agree that Jesus got a lot of help from a lot of places to get him to God. Yeah. And I do think that, in my view, there's a way that you can understand Jesus, his significance in that, Jesus was confronting the religious idea that God and humankind are separate or separated. And that when Jesus was sort of making these claims that at least seemed like a claim to divinity or being one with God, that he was saying that as a representative of all of humankind, because the title that Jesus took for himself mostly was Son of Man, which is right. a statement of solidarity with humankind. And I think that Jesus was wanting us to understand that there is no separation from God. And that because, right, Jesus even says this in that John 17, you know, it's a little convoluted the way Jesus is. I'm in the Father, the Father's me, you're in me, and all this stuff. And that I think that Jesus' primary message is that God and humankind are not separate, they're not separated. And another way to saying that is that Jesus and Jonathan and me are only a incarnation or an expression or a manifestation of that one ground of being which the we can use the word god to identify and this is why the idea of hell is not even possible on any kind of ontological it has no foundation because it would assume a separation from god right if i could go to hell and be separate from god that would make me god because then i could generate some kind of existence cut off from god and that way it wouldn't be possible right so but not only that but think of all the other ways that eternal conscious torment is not a reasonable like uh, support for God's justice or God's love. Both of them are absurd. Like to try to magnify God's justice and use eternal conscious torment as some way to magnify his holiness or justice makes no sense because the punishment doesn't fit the crime. And then certainly to say that God is love, but that, you know, e the, the eternal conscious torment is something that God's going to use on, I don't know, let's take the best case scenario, you know, 50% of our species from beginning to now are going to be, you know, in that spot. Yeah, absurd is the word. You just said it. I had a conversation with a dude at uh, the coffee shop who just a couple of days ago and just a random, like, never seen this guy before. And he found out pretty quickly that I was a Christian and not a writer. And then he sat down and just started asking questions and grilling me. And uh, we, yeah, we got pretty quickly, we got into the hell thing. So he was like, oh, so you're a universalist. And I'm like, I don't know why, if you're a Christian, why wouldn't everyone want to be a universalist? Right. It's like we wear, it's like you wear this as a badge of honor that God would want to punish. And it led into all that stuff you, you just said it was such an interesting conversation. Yeah. Like, why do we want to argue for that? Like, why do we, that needs to be the, the thing 
that we're, we're going to maintain. And when people ask me if I'm a universalist, I say right off, uh, right off I say, yes, I am, because I, I universally believe that all people are an expression of the same ground of being. I universally believe what Maslow said, which is that we all basically share the same human fears and desires. And I could go through a long list of things pointing out that there are universally there are universal characteristics of every human being that are deeply and profoundly significant. And, you know, that's why I think that even the staunch atheist would find at least 15 things in common with Jesus that they would agree on. Yeah. Including non-belief in God, or at least the God of religion, at least the God that Jesus said, well, you know, your idea of God, that God's a murderer. That God is a liar. Like this, this God, this thing you're calling God is not real. And so, you know, <clears throat> but to your point about being a Christian, and one of the reasons why I find ORT and process thinking useful is that, you know, I got a I got a um a question from someone. Hey Jim, is it really necessary that I drag the Bible and Jesus forward in my deconstruction? Why can't I just let it go? And I said, look, you do you. If you don't want to carry it forward, fine. But then I got another message from a woman who said, yeah, but Jim, what if I do want to carry Jesus in the Bible forward? What would you say to that? And it was the same answer. You do you. Like, if, it, like there's not a right answer to deconstruction. You know, like, um, and <clears throat> there's a reason why Jesus has endured as a person of you know, profound significance in the psyche of the human being, and even a reason why the Bible has been this as a as a profound piece of literature. So the idea that these have no place in post-religion spirituality is simply not true. It's just that it might need a different framework like ORT or the process thinking idea or others, you know, to allow a person to kind of integrate those together yeah and i think one the the thing that well there's multiple ideas with open and relational theology ort that i come back to but that relational aspect which is basically kind of what you were saying synonymous with the universal the things that we all share in common you know we're related biologically and psychologically and sociologically and geopolitically and you know, atomically, all of us come from all of our atoms. We all share the these atoms that come from this earth, that come from this solar system and this universe. I mean, we don't come from somewhere else. So that over and over. And then when you when you just begin to reflect upon, oh, that might be true of the divine as well, that the divine is not then separate, but is infused in very much, which is a biblical idea. It changes, it changes. Uh, it radically changes all your stuff. Not at first, but once you start to follow that trail, I I love that part. Yeah, and I, there's so much consensus in that idea, whether it's coming from right. sciences, Eastern spirituality, right. even Spinoza's philosophical monism. It's all using different language to identify a sort of universal ground of being or ultimate essence or even Spinoza's case he used the word God you know and we might come at it with different language or a different way of you know appreciating it I think the hard part for me is that because I have a theistic background like it's if you come out of a theistic background there's it's hard to get rid of the residue like (laughs) even in the language I use sometimes and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with theism or you have to even give up theism. I'm just saying that that you have to really work if you're trying to create some framework out of theism, because it's all like in the water theism. Like, yeah. you know, that's like even panentheism, right? The people that are object to it are all concerned about the word in, like God in all. And the language kind of implies that there's a God. And there's this other thing called everything or all as if it's two different things, you know, and the minute you conceive of it as two different things, you're in trouble. Well, and think about even open relational, even though we're relational could to some people imply 
that there is a separate thing called God and there's this transactional relational piece that makes me separate. Right. And, and even if you do find that to be a useful path forward, we, we can also accept that there may be another layer of it that is real at the same time, right? Like, what's his name? Carlo Ravelli, the Italian theoretical physicist, has a great presentation where he points out, I know it looks like that the universe is just a bunch of blank space with these planets that, that like are hanging in it, but it's not like that at all. Like, it's fine for you to notice that there are planets that look like there are things in space, because that is the way that we experience them. Well, you, you, there has to be an experiencer. Mm. And the experiencer experiences mainly through sensory, you know, sensory um, capacities. And even the Buddhists would say that the mental conceptualization piece is still a sense that's no different from hearing or smelling or whatever. But even though we perceive planets as separate things, it's not actually the way it is. Mm. Like the universe isn't a big piece of paper with objects on it or space in it. It actually is only one thing energetically or there's vibrationally or at its most foundational subatomic particles or even whatever they've decided that is now, you know, that there's, there is partly an allusion to the idea that there's a Jonathan over there and there's a Jim over here. And it's true that there is a patterning of appearance and personality and characteristics in the history that I can spot you as Jonathan and you can spot me as Jim. But there is something deceiving about that in that there's something else going on that makes us one or accessing the same ground of being or being in God together, God in us together, that is a little harder to pick up. Yeah. Just it's it's all about scale, like depending on the scale that you're looking at. Um, so there is something about being me, and I'm kind of enclosed in this scan and stuff. Right. And you look at it one way, but you look at it another way, we're all interconnected. Um, I learned of the term recently, micro microbiome. There's a guy by the name of Neil Cease who talks about, and, and others have heard others talk about this too, but I just read his book called Notes on Complexity. And he talks about how the human body cellularly, over 50% of our cells are actually non-human cells yeah. inside of us. So, But I would die without those, but they're not actually human. So we are so organically interconnected. It's hilarious and quite uh, disconcerting. So, so, so I agree with you. It's okay to be a theist. It's just tough to be a theist because you you really have to do some serious work on this whole separation relationality piece. That everyone, all of our best people, as you as you already alluded to, scientists and psychologists and sociologists and theologians and all of us, everyone are, is saying. Oh no, we're interconnected at some level, and to be a theist, that's when you really start to parse it out. You kind of have to deny that, and that's that's tricky. Yeah, I'd say that one of the biggest influencing areas in my deconstruction was in the area of linguistics, deconstructing language, mm -hmm. because I once I realized that my a word is not the equivalent of an objective reality mm. like that was useful right like you know we know that language is a social technology that our species created in order to cooperate and move things forward and if i'm talking about like this glass this cup it's fairly easy because we all agree that a cup is basically some kind of material object that holds something in it. And no matter where you're at, if I say in the right language, we're roughly going to come up with something like that. Or if I say the word chair, but if I say the word God, the more abstract it becomes, it's very different, right? Like, you know, well, well, you know, the word cup is just a word that we created to as a linguistic symbol to try to identify something that we can kind of agree on what it means because that's useful. There really is nothing in the universe called a cup, right? That's just the word that we assign to this thing. Yeah. So there really is nothing that exists that could be, there is no God that actually exists from the standpoint that God is a word that we've used to roughly approximate something on the level of ultimate reality. And let's, to be fair, religion is sort of 
had the lion's share of influence on what we think about this word. But it's not like when people say something like, do you believe in God or not, that this is a question that you could reasonably answer, because it's not like there, it's like, do you believe this cup is here or not? Because, you know, there's whatever you, you're thinking that whatever you think God means in your case, you know, like, it's not like something that has a yes or no answer. And that's why even atheism is a, could be a position on a certain idea of God, although I don't want to be unfair to atheists because I think that atheists, some of them would deny not only religion's God, but any gods or deities or any supernatural explanation to the universe. And that's okay, mm-hmm. you know, but um, I also have met some atheists, not probably most, but a few who are atheists because they reject the religious conceptualization of God. They've never been given a plausible, decent idea of what what this divine might be. Right. Yeah. I don't blame them. Like, I'd be an atheist, too, if I hadn't figured out some of these other pathways, because some of it just gets absurd. Right. So, you know, because I do have a conversation with an atheist where, you know, as it turned out, I said, do you believe in God? They said no. And as the conversation went on, I asked, well, let me ask a question. Do you believe in love? And of course, you know, the answer to that question is always going to be, well, that's kind of a dumb question. Of course, I believe in love. I mean, like I instinctually, it's self-evident that love is good. It's good when I give love. It's good when I receive love. We could all agree that love is the preeminent sort of expression of any philosophy or religion. At least I got that part right, mostly. And then we know that um, you know, the world would be a better place if there was more love and so on. And so the follow-up question is, well, what if I told you that God is love? Would you believe in God then? And to be intellectually honest, the person would have to say, well, if you're telling me that God is love, like that's what God is, then I would at least have to open the possibility of believing in God because I do believe in love. And if God is love and love is God, and we're saying that this is what God is, and the Bible actually says this in one place, God is love, then it might be a useful conversation for a person who just rejects the God who smashed babies into rocks in the Old Testament. Yeah, I think so. I think it's a very good point. I think love is a great a great place to kind of Play the love card, which uh, trivializes the whole idea. It's not just a love card. I think it's. I think that's the actual thing. Is my guess. That's my suspicion. Yeah. Um, okay. Earlier, I said I had a comment and then some questions. We never even got to the questions because okay. talking to you is basically like drinking out of a fire hydrant. Um, I was going to ask you how how was it because um, we have Gen Zers that listen to this and you got a you got a kid. I got two boys. Um, and a lot of them, not necessarily my boys, but a lot of their friends and people that were a part of my church, uh, and maybe just a little bit older are dealing with family members and friends who are so frustrated by all the change in the world, uh, and by a lot of things and frustrated maybe by their decisions. So how have you maintained I'm just guessing, because I don't know you super well, but now having had a few conversations with you, how have you maintained, um, what do I want to say? Well, just not becoming bitter towards people who, because I'm sure you, you've had to have had people that got upset at you, right? <laughs> that didn't, that got mad at you for your theological changes. So how have you cultivated, like I talk about a thick skin and a tender heart versus thin skin and a hard heart. How's that? What's that journey been like for you? And, and are you any good at that? And how, how, how have you gotten good at that? I think that one of the things was something I learned from Buddhism. Here's one practical application I learned from Buddhism is something called indiscriminate and objectless compassion which is that fundamentally compassion is not transactional as if somebody deserves it for one reason or should be given lots of it in one case. And there's another person who doesn't deserve it or should be given less. It's maybe the conversation. Another way to have it is that like, yeah, um, it's a difference between thinking about love is something you do versus love is something you are doing love versus being love. If you're being love, like for as an example, like, 
you know, there's all kinds of people who leave religion and say, well, I don't know anything. I can't base my life on anything. I don't, you know, it's just all, and then I'll try to convince them actually that's not true. Everything, the most profound things you need to know, you already know. Like, for example, you know that love is good. So if you never do anything else for the rest of your life, if all you did is you stopped in every situation, you asked yourself, what would it mean right now for to be love? That would be all the meaning that you would need for the rest of your life and would be a source of great joy for you and you would be happy. And the person might say, well, how do you answer that question? And they, and the, I'm not saying that the answer is always easy, right? Being in love with your best friend versus being in love with the person that you you were the victim of their abuse are two different things. It's just always going to be the right question that you can ask that will always orient you in a direction that's meaningful for you and others. So the idea with object is similar with compassion, which is that um, I can have compassion with the person who hates me for a lot, in a lot of ways. One is, is I understand the dynamics of what happens when a person is threatened existentially by someone bopping along questioning their faith. Mm. I was once that person myself. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, when I was at Trinity Seminary, someone came around talking about how, you know, you can't trust the Bible. You know, I would have apologetics talk because I would be threatened. So I understand that a person's existential security, their identity, their marriage, their social network, their entire support system depends upon this belief structure. And so there is compassion along those lines. There's also another area that I can always have compassion, which is Abraham Maslow's, as I mentioned, a hierarchy of needs. I realize that I actually am afraid of the same thing this person is, and I want the same things. Even right now, it's appearing in this conversation the way that it is, but it's just masking that me and this person are exactly the same. But even more importantly than all of that would just simply be that there is, or another one to throw in is, and, you know, this is all opening a whole bunch of can of worms, but the whole argument that like there needs to be a hell for people like Hitler. And so, you know, and we could have a whole conversation about that in terms of scapegoating and other things. But the point is, is that no four-year-old says, when I grow up, I want to engineer one of the most horrific abuses and death culture against humankind. I did. I want to be this when I grow up. Nobody does that. So if you took, what's his name, the guy who just wrote the book Determine, which is a book that's arguing against free will. It's not, mm. I always call this guy Spolansky, but it's oh, like- Oh, Sapolsky or- Yes. Yeah. So, you know, he, and even Sam Harris believes that take, leaving out the absence of free will actually lends itself to being people of greater compassion because what we don't do is that we're not going to scapegoat or victimize the person as much as we're going to understand the dynamics that were at play, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, Hitler did not engineer the Holocaust himself alone, right? Yeah, right? Not only were there a lot of factors that were conditioning him into that place of psychotic thinking and acting on it to the demise of millions of people horrifically, but there were a lot of other factors that were part of that right. that fed into that system as well. So, you know, um, but that's a really long and bad, probably unrelated way of answering your question, which is that for me, I've seen that, that, um, that I cannot ever discriminate with my use of compassion, I cannot focus it to an object and choose the object. It has to be a way of being in the world as a person that, that will hold a space of compassion for the entirety of humankind. And part of that is that if I rewound the clock and put myself all the way back <clears throat> into <clears throat> these conditions, who's to say that I might not have ended up with the same result? Like some years ago, I read the book called Listening to Killers. This guy who wrote this book was an expert case, a psychiatric expert on cases of serial killers. So his whole career was spent interviewing 
serial killers to try to make some professional judgment in a trial about their condition. He wrote a book called Listening to Killers. And of course, the big shock, which really isn't, we could probably all predict that this might have happened, is that they shared so many things in common mm -hmm. in in, the, in what conditioned them. Now, that doesn't mean that every person of those conditions is going to be serial killers, because I probably have a few and you do also when we're not serial killers. All I'm saying is that it does provide some basis for compassion. Um, but my own feeling is that the, the distinguishing characteristic of true enlightenment is compassion. Mm. Like if that's not happened yet, maybe keep pressing forward. And it can't be a compassion where some people are in and some people are out. But it's okay to set boundaries. Of course. So so let's take the Hitler, for example, or let's take a serial killer. Or let's just take a person who commits crimes. <laughs> you know, that um, let's take all of them. Yeah, let's take everybody. So <laughs> um there's nothing wrong with our with a society deciding that practically speaking we have to have a consequence and protect people for someone who does or is likely to commit crimes injuring other people you, you know like this is a reasonable approach to take in building a human civilization our species you know figured this out but that it doesn't have to happen in the absence of compassion like for example, meaning out a consequence that is designed to be a protectionary major uh, um, factor to others doesn't have to be bereft of compassion. It can, there's never a moment when you don't have the choice to be compassionate. And it doesn't mean, well, here, let me give you an example. That, um, because I've worked with victims of domestic violence. My daughter interned uh, in a domestic violence shelter. You know, um, so in terms of what it means to be loved or what it means to be compassionate in a case like that, it's probably not going to be a a, a sort of direct or individual um, expression of that to the person. Like the the it doesn't necessitate that anyway. You know. That, like, we've all seen the stories about the father that goes to prison and sees the guy who killed his daughter and is willing, is somehow able to go and talk to him personally and say, I forgive you and hug you and they kiss and they're crying. You know, someone might do that, but I don't think it, that is a necessary to hold people with compassion or. You know, like I can give you a personal example for myself is that um, I was a victim of abuse by way of my mother. And as a result of that abuse, I concluded a certain idea about myself that was wrong. I concluded when I was young and I did some deconstruction work around it and came to realize that based on my mother's story and the contributing factors to her life that it wasn't personal mm -hmm. you know like the abuse that i encountered by way of the person who was supposed to most protect me love me nurture care you know it wasn't personal it wasn't like she said hmm i wonder how i can get up today and abuse my son now that's what i took from it because that's kind of what happened and so i kind of concluded there's something wrong with me Mm -hmm. Obviously, I'm bad. Who does this is someone unless they're bad or they deserve it because that's the way a child deals with it. But I eventually depersonalized it by understanding the full context and contributing factors, which became a basis for compassion for me with respect to my mother. So, um, so yes, I think that one of the disservice 
of toxic religion is that it tries to explode all boundaries, right? Even if you're in like a terrible abusive marriage, you should kind of stick it with it because you, you know, by doing this, God's happier and maybe they'll become better people and it's kind of your job to tolerate it. Or, you know, what honor your father and mother, even though they're toxic and abusive, and you're supposed to do that to be religious, or turn the other cheek means that you should passively allow some kind of abuse as a sign of your spirituality. They're like there's all kinds of ways that religion conceives of these ideas as you know, not maintaining healthy boundaries with other people in the lived human experience. So I think. The big question would be, what would it mean for me to be love and be compassionate or to be compassion mm. and to honor the fact of my boundary, mm -hmm. you know, um, whatever the answer to that question is, it's a good question to think about, yeah. you know, and kind of figure out what it would mean for you to, to be in that space. You know what the, what the operative word might be, Jim? It might be consent. Someone should write a book called Theology of Consent and talk about what I can do to love people within borders and parameters and make it a consensual thing. Right. So when you mean consensual, meaning that you're not coerced to, yeah. or to, to kind of um, fake love or fake compassion or fake forgiveness kind of thing? Yeah, both ways. Uh, I was thinking of it in terms of of boundaries. So you you have to set up boundaries because when someone is not being in a consensual relationship with you, if they're not consenting, okay, if, you're, if, yeah. you're, if you don't want to consent to what they're doing, you have every right to draw boundaries, and that's and that's love, mm -hmm. and that also love is very consensual in that it will allow itself to be taken advantage of but also at the same time empower you for you and me and all of us, I'm saying you generally, empower you to come up with your own ideas of well, where, where are you going to draw the line? You know, so one person. Right, that, yeah, that's a perfect way. You know, some people use the word tough love, which some people don't like, but just take your example a little further is that like, for example, if you and I are relating to each other, and we're only relating to the part that we experience on the surface. We're kind of missing the other stuff that's worth thinking about. Um, so the thing about it is, is that if I'm relating to another person, the way I'm relating to them, let's say I'm not setting a boundary in this case, is that I'm kind of reinforcing the, the identity that they're projecting out on me because I'm tolerating it. Mm -hmm. So it's not actually an act of love to enable the person's abusive behavior. Right. The act of love in this case could be the boundary of walking away because not only is it right for you and your well-being, you're all it's not helping them to enable them or to drop your boundary because it's basically reinforcing the least true thing about them. And so refusing to play along. Yeah, don't with, engage. Don't engage. Yeah. yeah. I think. Uh, it's too simplistic to say this uh, too much, but I think a great deal of our problems with dealing with people like Trump or maybe like, um, oh, geez, what's his name? That Mark Driscoll that has emerged again in the last year or two. Yeah. Like, I, I think if we just wouldn't engage uh, that narcissistic be behavior, which is actually a real condition. Unfortunately, narcissism has you know been a term that's probably overused and maybe watered down. I, I think. Um, I think a lot of that behavior would go away. Mm -hmm. And to a lesser degree, that's probably true. That's probably a good answer in um, terms of trying to help young people interact with folks who are angry, upset. Um, you know, it takes a while to figure out kind of what your boundaries are and you don't have to take all that on and it's okay not to engage. Yeah. And then other times love will invite you <clears throat> when you are feeling stronger or, you know, it, it's again, it's, it's about consent when you're ready other times love will invite you to uh to step in but be careful <laughs> yeah it wouldn't be a good conversation if <clears throat> we didn't find some way to pull in wiccans but a common wiccan idea is the <laughs> no harm principle do you okay. know you know so <clears throat> which is it could be that an act of compassion would be to walk away 
and to go the route of no harm, mm. right? Like, you know, and I'm not even saying that, you know, look, number one is not to judge people, mm. right? Like, um, so this isn't prescriptive. Like you should do compassion like this because every situation is different right. and you can't really, but I think that one idea would be <clears throat> a way of accessing compassion in those situations where it seems damn near impossible to do it with a particular person that maybe a place you could go to is an act to, to hold compassion by doing no harm, <clears throat> which a complete disengagement, but just no harm, you know, like for example, if I get <laughs> guy gets mad at girlfriend and he slits her tires, right? <clears throat> Or vice versa. Well, maybe the no harm is that you don't like slice up the tires. Yeah. That's a bad example, but anyway. <laughs> no, I'm all, I do hope people don't go slice tires after they listen to this podcast. So I think that'll Someone be. Someone will good. probably slice mine if they're in the I, area. I know. If there's some theists in the area, they'll come by and slice my tires. Which, let me just say, when I talk about non-religious spirituality, I don't mean anti-religious spirituality. And I do talk about this because I don't pretend that I know that my experience of religion is not representative of everyone's experience of religion. And even the word has changed. When William James used the word religious, he was roughly referring to what now we use the word spirituality to describe. And I do a lot of intersectionality work in spiritual direction training. So a, a white middle-class man church hopping in his deconstruction is not the same as, for example, an African-American woman for whom the church has been the only thing they've had. Yeah. Like Kanye West, for example, does not, you know, he's not, he doesn't go to church because he's sold on the theology. He's going because it is a rock-solid community of support. It doesn't matter at some level what some people might believe about the virgin birth mm -hmm. or the Trinity. It provides something of profound value. And so, you know, just telling people that part of deconstruction is walking away from your church family, it's, you can't assume that right. for people. Right, right, right. Yeah. <clears throat> Uh, just now I've got the Chick-fil-A closed on Sunday song stuck in my head by Kanye West, <laughs> which is uh, one of the least. Uh, next, time we, next time we talk about free will. Okay. All right. Well, um, we've been going an hour and I was going to ask you about the Center for Non-Religious Spirituality. Um, that's a thing that you have started and are running and how, how could, uh, yeah, what's your inner invitation for people to get involved in that? Um, I created Center for Non-Religious Spirituality as a hub for people doing deconstruction and reconstruction, people that are cultivating a post-religion spirituality. There's ex-Christians, there's ex-Evangelicals, there's ex-Mormons, there's ex-everything in there. But I really started this center with the conviction that spirituality is a universally relevant, significant dynamic for individual and collective well-being, and we shouldn't let religion limit access to that or conversations about it and so you know there's it's an online community where you won't be judged for being wherever you're at and there's other opportunities and i do stuff in there or whatever but it's nonreligiousspirituality.com and you know um so that's one place where I kind of am a little more involved these days, mainly because I train non-religious spiritual directors and so that's kind of what I'm focusing on right now. That's really cool, man. So I encourage people to check that out and also to find you at, uh, like what, jimpalmerauthor.com or something like that? jimpalmerauthor.com. I'm on Facebook. I'm really bad at TikTok, but I'm trying to figure it out. <laughs> I just started TikTok a few weeks ago. I That's suck. I swear, I can't say anything less than five minutes. I know. It. Um, I'll do anything to sell a book, though, so I'm giving it a, I'm giving it a shot. Well, well. <laughs> That's what I, that's what's funny too is because TikTok obviously it's geared this fast short attention span and then I write a book like Indigo which is basically the complete opposite slow everything down try to go deep 
yeah. you know, to try to advertise that on TikTok, it's I'm having such cognitive dissonance. It's uh, it's pretty funny. Yeah, the, the the attention span of Gen Z is eight seconds, which is why mm. 10 second TikToks are really good that you have a lot of those. And, you know, um, the thing is, is that also Gen Zers may be the most educated generation because fewer of them are dropping out of high school. And surprisingly, most of more of them are going to college. They're the first digital natives, which means yeah. they never know a minute in their life outside of the radical technologized, well, this social media. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and that, um, you know, a lot of people say that, that they're likely to be the most educated, their brains process thing, things, you know, more quickly than most generations. And so maybe this will all be promising if AI doesn't take over and we all become cyborgs. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, on that happy note. <laughs> Uh, thanks for hanging out with me and thanks for, um, for sharing the word about Indigo too. I, I really appreciate that. And uh, I love that book so much. Oh, thank you. You know, I just, I hope the, the book, everyone will read that book. It's brilliant. It's so heartfelt. It was really moving for me to read, you know, as well as the other books you've written, like, um, the scapegoating book is another like fascinating one. I think mm -hmm. a lot of people have not really dug into mimetic theory and understand yeah. it could be the, sort of the the linchpin to help people like work out some things and their yeah. struggles. You know, if they would read that book, and of course, Tom has written several things also that are yeah. extremely useful. Nah, Tom, it's um, okay, not that much, but mostly, yeah, just, mostly you know, a few stuff. little things. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I appreciate you all that to say. Thank you, man. Thank you. That was really kind of you. Appreciate it. That's that's pretty much, that's the only part I'm going to leave for the, for the episode. I'm going to cut everything else out and we're just going to leave that. <laughs> uh, all right. Okay. I'm going to push stop, but I'm still going to say goodbye. After I push stop, I always forget okay. to tell my guests to don't hang up and then sometimes I accidentally hang up. on. Okay. Them. I'm going to stop recording. Thanks a lot, man. For the podcast. Peace. All right. Good times with my friend, Jim Palmer. I hope you'll find him at jimpalmerauthor.com. Learn more about what he's doing. Don't forget to pick up a copy of Indigo. You can either pre-order it if it's after December 5 when you're listening to this. You can just order it like a regular person. December 5, 2023, by the way. I mean, some of you might be listening. Who knows? It could be like 2025 right now. I don't know. Either way, thanks for participating. Thanks for reading. I hope that you'll be able to take some of the stuff that Jim talked about and we discussed about today, apply it to your life and be a more non-anxious person, be a person at peace with who you are and know that God loves you. I think that that's what's going on. I really do think God loves you. All right. Have a great week. Peace, everyone.